Hey, what's up, storytellers? I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying the show, but you have not yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Our community is truly something so special and your reviews give new listeners a glimpse of what it's like to be a part of 88 Cups of Tea. The more ratings and reviews we get, the higher our chances are of getting featured so new storytellers can find us and join our community and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you for taking the time. On that note, I'd love to share a recent review by Kursky, spelled K-R-S-K-E-Y. They rated us five stars and wrote, bubbly, upbeat, fresh, and diverse writing perspectives. I've been trying to find inspiration to write my North Korean mother's story. This podcast introduces an expansive collection of cultural experiences. It's so exciting to connect to authors who share similar journeys, but also write through many different genres. Keep it up. Thank you so much for leaving such a sweet review. I'd love to encourage you to join our private Facebook group where fellow storytellers like you jump in every week to update each other about their writing progress. I have a gut feeling it's something that could provide extra support and encouragement for you while you write your mother's story. And by the way, it already sounds incredible. Good luck and we are cheering you on and I hope you continue to find inspiration from 88 Cups of Tea during your writing process. Storytellers, if you didn't know, we have a Patreon page packed full with bonus content and fun perks. Patreon has been an incredibly helpful platform for us, and when you sign up, your tangible contribution directly helps us continue our work. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to learn more, and thank you so much for considering supporting 88 cups of tea and the content that we create. An important reminder and announcement for those of you who love to read and love 88 Cups of Tea content, head over to our website to read our articles and essays written by some of your favorite authors. Most recently, Julie Kibler wrote an essay about outsider syndrome. We published a personal piece on why we need more women authors in the fantasy genre written by Annie Sullivan. And Sarah Faring wrote an actionable piece on creating plot twists in your story. Trust me, you really do not want to miss out on these pieces. They are so good. Head over to 88cupsofteacom and click on the articles and essays tab in our menu section and you can find our entire collection of inspiring pieces. Now on to today's guest, Ali Condi. Ali is the author of Summer Lost, Atlantia, and the critically acclaimed Matched Trilogy, a number one New York Times and international bestseller. In our conversation, Ali shares the heartfelt story of how she fell in love with storytelling and her journey to becoming a best-selling author. We discuss working with smaller publishing companies, how to embrace rejection to reach your writing goals, and we get into the nitty-gritty of Ali's writing and editing process. We continue on to talk about how she finds time to write with such a busy schedule and the tools she uses to get into the writing mindset. We dive into the details of her newest novel, The Last Voyage of Poe Blythe, and the fascinating behind-the-scenes story of what sparked that idea. And towards the very end, Allie talks about her experience getting her master's degree she always wanted and what exciting projects she's currently working on, including a co-authored novel, and the ways you can use writing to make a change in the world. Okay, now let's dive right in. Why don't we just start off with how you first fell in love with storytelling? So I've liked it since I was a little kid. I'm one of those annoying people who sort of always wanted to do it, but <laughs> I didn't 
know how. I just sort of dictated to my babysitter before I could write or read. So she'd come over and I'd tell her, here's my story, write it down. And she would. And my mom kept all of those and their childhood stories. So they're simultaneously disturbing and terrible. But (laughs) (laughs) And I was lucky though, because I have a mom who's a professional artist, a visual artist. She works in pastels. And so... I was in a home where creativity was valued and I saw her making a living at it. She was a teacher, a college professor of art as well, but she also had her own shows and exhibits and things like that. And so I kind of followed her without really meaning to. I wanted to be a writer and I knew that it was a tricky career. And so I became a high school English teacher, which I loved. But it turns out that if you teach high school, not college, all you do is great. And so the only time in my life that I wasn't writing is actually when I was teaching high school. <laughs> when you were a kid, I'm assuming you're always absorbing stories. And I know you're mentioning you were dictating to the babysitter first, but what about your mom and your dad? They were great. So they both sort of have nine to five jobs. My mom, like I said, was a university professor. Yeah. And so a lot of that was just was them being gone during the day. And I hung out with my grandma actually, who was also super nurturing. So sometimes I think that I had almost three parents because I had these three people who were all invested in me and loved me and thought I was great. And my parents were wonderful about always having books on hand, always having materials that I could use to write with, being totally supportive. But also, and I don't know if you've had this experience either, but my grandma thought I was more awesome than my parents did. <laughs> so mm. I think parents love you, but they can also see your flaws. And of course, with grandparents, their whole job is to be you can do no wrong. And so everything I wrote was brilliant. Everything was so good. And that was really lucky to have too. I mean, my parents were absolutely amazing, but I had that sort of third person giving me props when perhaps they weren't deserved. That was very nice as well. Is your grandma still with you? Uh, No, she passed away about four years ago. She was 90. I'm so sorry. I always think no one on the planet is going to love me the way she did. (laughs) But it's a really wonderful thing to have had, you know? Yes. And I, you know, when you say four years ago, that's very recent. So your grandma was able to witness and hold your books. Yeah, she was a little bit, she was fading a little bit by then. Um, The last 10 years, she was so sweet, but not always as sharp as she had been. But I think she got it. I think she understood, maybe not to the full level, but like you said, she could hold it in her hands. She saw my name on the cover. And I think she was a little bewildered by the dystopian aspect, you know, (laughs) but she was absolutely very proud and great about it. I'm personally really curious, you know, that time, if you can remember the first time you brought your work and you shared it with your grandma for the very first time. Like, what were you feeling? Where were you? Like, I want to, I want to be in that room with you. Oh, that's such a fun question. So she had this great little Cape Cod house, (gasps) adorable. And in the middle of Southern Utah, it sort of stood out. Nobody else really had a house like that. And it's a lot of stucco and siding and and great houses, but she always kind of did her own thing. And so I had that layout of that house locked into my head as maybe you do with some of your childhood places too. You just know them so intimately, like where every heating vent was because I would sit on it and read and all of those kinds of things. So I remember taking it to her in the kitchen because she was always cooking and showing the story to her. And it was, I think it was about first grade and I would illustrate them very badly. And so I shipped to her and she loved it. She read it. She was great about it. And then she said, you know what? I'm going to give you a drawer in my desk where you can keep all your stories and I will never look in it unless you tell me I can. And so 
we went right then and cleaned out this drawer in her desk. And until I went to college, actually, I could keep stuff in there. You're kidding. You know, I have goosebumps on my arms right now. Do you know how sweet that story is? Do you know how incredible? I mean, you know how incredible your grandma is, but I'm just also making the statement again, how incredible she is. Everyone would be so lucky to have someone like your grandma, especially when you're so young. Allie, oh my goodness. I love your grandma. Oh my gosh. She's so sweet. Do you mind me asking what your dad does? Yeah. So my dad at the time was a district court judge. And then just this year, actually, he retired from being a federal magistrate. Well, congratulations. He's very happy to be retired. Yes, I'm sure. He's driving for Meals on Wheels now and he's loving it. So. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Getting more of an idea about where your upbringing was from, just like a little glimpse. So you grew up in Utah, I read in your bio that you currently live in Utah as well with your husband and four children. Were you the type of person that was very much like Utah, you knew in your heart is always going to be in your home? Or did you have a little bit of a wandering, wanderlust heart and then came back home? So I did leave and come back. I'm actually the only person in my family who lived outside of Utah for longer than a year or two. (laughs) It just always comes back. But so I did a semester in London for college which was wonderful. And then my husband did his graduate work, his PhD at Cornell. So we lived in upstate New York for five years while he was doing that. And he's actually from Seattle. So we weren't locked into coming back here, but the university that hired him ended up being Brigham Young. And so we did move back here after graduate school and we have been here for quite a while. It's a different part of the state from where I grew up. It's about three hours north. So I grew up in the Red Rock part and this is the mountain part. So it's very similar culture wise. So Utah is a super religious state, as most people know, but my parents were not. And so every Sunday they took us hiking. And so we got to go to Zion all the time, almost every week. Um, Sometimes we went to Bryce Canyon, but we went to part of the reason my parents settled in Cedar City is my dad was from there, but also they liked the national park. So we did a lot of hiking a lot of camping. And my brother actually grew up to be a fisheries biologist for the area. So he's in charge of the health of the small streams. So we still get to do a lot of cool hiking, backcountry stuff. It's very fun. How much of all of these surroundings, whether consciously or maybe subconsciously, your writing and your storytelling? Growing up, you do take it a little bit for granted, especially if you're lucky enough to have parents who take you there a lot. The thing I've rediscovered as an adult is taking people there for the first time and seeing their reaction and you realize how special it is all over again. So absolutely. I mean, I think that informed a lot of what I write because in the West, we like to feel like we're scrappy and, you know, individualistic. And I think that comes through in the writing as well as setting often. I know you mentioned that you went to London for schooling and then you moved to upstate New York. When you were up there, do you mind me asking about how old you were? Yeah, so I, we were 23 when we moved to New York and 28 when we left. So that's when we were living there. And I started writing. I had been teaching for a few years. And then when we ended up having our first two children there, and after we had our first baby, I stayed home with him. And also we were living in a sorority as the house parents. I was living almost basically with teenagers, with the sophomores, with 19-year-old girls. And I thought, you know what? I miss teaching. I miss the kids. I'm living with teenagers. I'm going to write a young adult book. That was kind of when I started. I loved teaching. It was, you know, I said I didn't write while I was teaching and I didn't care because I loved teaching so much and I coached cross country and it was just really fun and consuming. 
But then when I had my first son, it worked out that I could stay home with him if we moved into this sorority and were the house parents. And so, so there we are. I mean, it was super chaotic, very funny. We have a lot of great stories from Kappa Kappa Gamma, but they were amazing women. I mean, they were kids kind of, cause they were only sophomores, but you already had the sense, like these are young women who are going to change the world. They're also super fun. They also like to party, but they are going to do some pretty amazing things. And so that was very inspiring and really cool to have my kids around that, even as, as very young children. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now your two boys, were they, they were, of course they sounded, they were young when you were living there in the sorority house, but was it to the point where it would ever disrupt you when you're trying to put them to bed? Because like, I know my sister, they go out late and they party hard and they're like screaming and shouting. You know what I mean? That absolutely happened. (laughs) You know, you moved into the sorority with the understanding that you're there to take care of them. This is their house. And so you just sort of roll with it. It's fine. And my kids became pretty, actually very good sleepers and they loved the girls. And, you know, we moved, when we moved to Utah a few years later, my then three-year-old would just walk up to college age girls at Target or whatever, the grocery store, like admire me, love me because he was so used to all the attention and adulation. And it was really funny. And, and so they had a blast. They loved it. You know that saying, what was it, takes a village to raise a child? That kind of comes into my mind just overall, like when we were talking about how your grandma stepped into also someone to help raise you along with your mom and dad. And then now it's, I'm thinking of all the sorority girls, I'm sure they were like ooing and aahing, like, oh my God, you're so cute and so handsome, which I have no doubt they are. And you know, it's it's like they're surrounded by a village of love. Like how lucky. They were always really cute about it. Like during rush, they would say, can you walk through when we're having the girls come through? Just act like you have to go to the kitchen and carry the baby. They wanted us to sort of be on parade. Just, and I thought that was so nice that they were, they thought the kids were cute and that we were an asset, not a liability. So at that time, where was it when creativity did start knocking on your door? I always wrote stories, but I never finished anything. So there was never a complete novel or anything like that. And then I thought, you know what, I am going to try while I'm living in the sorority and I'm not, I'm, I'm here a lot with this baby. I'm going to try writing while he naps. They always tell you to sleep while the baby's napping. But I thought, I'm going to just try to write and see if I can finish a book. And I kept thinking about former students and I kept thinking about the girls in the sorority. And I had this idea for this book that ended up, you know, not really doing a lot, but was fun to write where it was the year of a school year in a high school told by different points of view from different characters. And so that was just fun. It was just so fun to write. And that gave me sort of the impetus to, you know, let's keep going. Cause a lot of people's first novels are great and a lot of people's aren't. And that was the category I fell into. And so that was the first book, but it gave me enough momentum and excitement and fulfillment and finishing it to think maybe this is something I should keep doing, even though I'm not, you know, getting paid well or at all at it. <laughs> like, let's just keep trying. I know it's very common for a lot of writers when they're in that process to share their works with beta readers, for example. Was this very much a process where at that time, still pretty much solo and insular? Or were you aware of beta readers at the time? I do now with my agent because she's amazing. But before I didn't, the first draft is always sort of me telling myself the story. I heard someone say that once and that's absolutely true for me. I could give it to someone and it would be probably very unproductive for them to read it because it's such a disaster. 
So, so I do keep the first drafts pretty close to the vest, but then when I had a full first draft that I felt good about that I had worked on and polished, I didn't even know to call them beta readers back then. I mean, you know, this is 2003, so it's a long Mm -hmm. time ago and the internet exists, but not in the writing community way that it does now as much, or at least I wasn't very connected to it. And so, but I had all these friends who were English teachers and not writers, but really good idea for, or eyes for story and very good at editing because that's a lot of our job too, is helping people clarify their writing, whether it's creative or research paper. So all my beta readers in the first years, at least were high school English teachers. And actually that's a fantastic group to have read your stuff as it turns out. I was like thinking, wow, that is so lucky too, that you had them as your first readers. Yeah, I was so lucky because I had former students. So were still in high school at that time or barely in college. So I could have them read too. And, you know, they aged out and grew up, but that was really nice. How was your voice? Were they able to very much resonate with it as teenagers themselves at the time? Yeah. So since it was told from different points of view, it was several different voices and the kids were really helpful. They would say, this voice is good. And this one, I'm not, this one's not there. And so they were, I mean, they are blunt and great. And so they would tell me when something wasn't right, or I don't think a kid would react this way to the situation. So yeah, there were, there were parts that were definitely flawed and they pointed them out and kind of said, this is what I think they would say. And you can't make them do that for every sentence, but you start to get an idea of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm lensing this with my adult lens, even though I was, you know, 23, 24 at the time, it's still, it's still distant. And so that was helpful too. Ooh, okay. This is something we also touch on a lot on the podcast. Of course, writing, we love talking about writing, but really the way we live as well, I think really has a lot to do with how conducive and how supportive you feel for your writing mentality. And again, these are real conversations we've had in our community where we have a private Facebook group we have conversations every single day for the last three years and the listeners will jump in and sometimes I'll ask them, Hey, what's your biggest challenge or pain point right now? Or what's something that's really, you know, holding you back or where are you tripping up on? And sometimes I see, they say that the partner is not as supportive as they would like them to be, or that because they know it's not really something that's encouraged, they end up feel almost embarrassed. It's almost like a secret they keep inside their own home. Everybody has a different story. Everybody's life is different. So I'm particularly curious during this time, like, you know, is this something that you're, you've talked about with your family? Were they completely supportive about it? Was it more of a, almost like a secret in the beginning? Yeah. In the beginning, it was a secret with my family, but it wasn't hard to keep that secret because they all lived in Utah and I was in New York. (laughs) My husband absolutely knew because he was working and going to graduate school and doing all of that. And he was super busy. And so I was alone a lot. And I told him, I think I'm going to try to write a book. And he was happy for me because otherwise I was just, because you can't really leave. You put the baby to bed at seven or whatever, and you're locked in for the night. And, you know, he was doing his own thing. He had a graduate school's demanding. He had a ton of work. And so I think he was pleased. He was never jealous of it. Um, in the beginning, it was sort of like, oh, great, you know, you have this thing to do too that you find challenging and fulfilling and all of that. And so, yeah, he knew from the beginning for sure. And I'm going to jump in with some like real talk here. Sure. I know with graduate students, you're right, it is so much work and a lot of pressure, a lot of deadlines. You, you're barely sleeping. So, in this case, 
Is this something where you were basically supporting the family, I assume, because you were also teaching at the time? Yes. So is this okay that we talk about this? It's just only I like to share it with the community in case anyone's going through this as well. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So yeah, I was supporting. He was also supporting the family because he was a graduate student, which meant he was also a research assistant or a teaching assistant. So he would get a stipend as well. So that was part of his workload was to teach or do research depending on the semester for different classes or different professors. So he was working like crazy. But yeah, I was also the breadwinner because either I was teaching or I was living in the sorority and running the house. By that, I mean, not the girls, they were in charge of their own stuff, but the hiring and the cleaning and all of that and the maintenance and the finances, I was in charge of all of that. So we both had sort of jobs and then we had these two babies. So nobody slept ever, you know, it was kind of, everybody was tired all the time. And I remember thinking, this is the hardest it will ever be to write because I have a job. I live with 40 girls. I have two babies. My husband's gone a lot. Um, great, but it has to be at school, has to be at work. And I thought this is the hardest it will ever be. And the thing is you can make any stage of your life feel like the hardest it will ever be. <laughs> I just would chip away at the beginning. I would try to write 500 words a day, which is not much, but at least it was something. And then Eventually I got a little bit better at it and I could usually get a thousand in if the kids napped for two hours. So there was kind of just training of yourself too. Like, okay, when are the openings? What can I do with that time? What are some goals that are manageable? Because I don't like to make goals and not reach them. So I would decrease the word count goal until it was something I could actually get. (laughs) Smart. I can't help but wonder during this time, because me personally, I think I would feel a lot of pressure just financially you know, chipping in, contributing, also being the breadwinner to keep the family afloat and make sure everybody's okay. Was that ever a pressure for you on your creative work when you're writing from 500 to 1,000 words a day? So oddly, it wasn't. Oh, wow. It was since that it took up all the time and I was tired and I had this other job that I was sort of always doing 24-7 at the sorority um, just in case never totally relax. But in a weird way, it also took the pressure off because I thought I have this other job. That's the thing that I'm doing to earn money. And this is sort of just for me. And so that first book at least was pure fun. It was just me thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm being responsible. I have this other job. I'm taking care of the kids, but this is the thing that I'm just going to enjoy. So that was a side benefit of all the other added stress. (laughs) The name of your first book, is this something that you published in the end? Or is this something that you kept private? Some writers, they write and then they'll put it in a drawer and never see the light of day again. Uh (laughs) Is this this one one of those? Or is it something that it was the first one you were able to bring out to publishers? So I did publish my first five books. And this was one of them with a small Utah press. But it's a very small press. A lot of people in Utah have heard of it, but outside not so much. And so that was enough I always am so grateful for that that little part of my career because it was enough of a shot in the arm and a pat on the head and whatever other you know metaphors you want to use to to get me to keep going. 
And so I wrote for them five books and then I had the idea for Matched and I wrote that and I took it to them. And they've had a lot of success with some really interesting projects. I don't know if you know Brandon Mole, who writes the Fablehaven series. He's been on the New York Times list over and over again. And he started out with them and his books with them did hit the list. So they have some really cool authors who I got to know there as well, which was fun. But anyway, so I knew they could do cool stuff with books. I knew they could hit the list. I knew they could get national attention if they had the right book. So I took Match to them and to their credit, my product director there said, you know, I think this might be bigger than than you think. And I'm going to release you from your contract and you should take it elsewhere. <gasps> what? They were that generous? They were. And at first, I thought, no, don't cut me loose. What? You know, but then I realized, okay, I got to do this. So I had to find an agent. I had to start over. But in the end, I mean, he absolutely did me such a huge, generous service. When he did that, was he able to connect you with someone that he felt could take you on and push you to a larger market? Or was it more so, I'm giving you the blessing to go forth on your own to find a home? He did have a contact at Simon & Schuster who he gave me her email and I emailed her and she never responded. Mm. So he did, he did try, but what I ended up having to do was just start looking online and querying agents and going into the slush pile, which I hadn't had to do with the small press because you don't need to be agented to publish with them. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you had to be agented even with a smaller press. Looking back, probably like they're a very small press and so they don't have you, but it probably would have been a good idea. I know Brandon Mull was agented and different or it or very quickly became agented, but they were always super honest with me. Very fair royalty rate. We just joke that no agent wants to work with such a small press because 10% of nothing is nothing. You know, you're not always moving a lot of books unless, unless you have a big hit. And so, so yeah, then I just looked everyone up who was an agent on agentquery.com back in the day and looked up who was publishing things that I was interested in and started sending stuff to their snail mail or their email, whatever they were asking for on their websites and just started doing that. Around what year was this when this happened? So this was 2009. I mean, 2009, still, there were not many resources out there, not that I am aware of. Like you were mentioning back in 2003, there was already like nothing out there like we do now, right? Everything's online. You Google, boom, you have the best resources. You have query examples used as inspiration for your own works where it guides you. But even in 2009, I don't think there was much out there. So Nathan Bransford and Kristen Nelson were keeping blogs. This was the era of the blog. And they were... (laughs) agents I really admired and they would post with permission, of course, from clients, successful query letters and things they were looking for. So there was enough. There was definitely more than 2003, but yeah, I mean, the scene has completely shifted. I'm assuming it was helpful to mention that you were published with this publisher in Utah. So that was interesting because it turned out that I mentioned it, of course, because you should disclose your publication history, probably in this case, (laughs) at least. And, but when I would ask the agents later, the agents who ended up offering representation, they said, to be honest, it was a nothing. It wasn't a pro. It wasn't a con. It was sort of a, huh, well, let's see what she sent me now. So, I mean, it was absolutely an asset because I worked with an editor. I learned to write better, but on the page, it turns out it was sort of a, a null, I guess. That's so interesting to know. I'm, I always love those little technical businessy behind the scenes, like startup. What's happening at Oz? Yeah. So thanks for giving me that glimpse. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, you ended up landing a literary agent. There's a lot in our community who have gone through like a year or even more of the querying trenches. And it's 
very disheartening for them. Anything that you can share that may enlighten them or bring them peace and a little bit of happiness. How long was your process? So I had two processes because I queried the initial book back in 2003 and nobody wanted it at all. And then I sent the small Utah press and the editor there, the acquisitions editor said, this is not great, but I see some promise. Rewrite it and send it back. And I did. And then she said, it's better. I'll give you one more chance. And so I rewrote it again and sent it back. This was a year and a half long process. And then she accepted it for publication. So I had failed out completely. Uh, You know, it was a year and a half, I think, of querying nothing, nobody bit, nobody wanted it, nobody was interested, tons of rejection. And then this sort of smaller career at this smaller publishing house with an editor who was willing to kind of walk me through let me do some revision and all of that. So she was amazing and I adore her. We're still friends to this day. But then with Matched, I started querying in June and I had an agent by October, which is much faster. Whoa, yes. I'm like, wait, Allie, that's like you barely breathed and you got an agent. I mean, for that time between June and October. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Between June and October, were you super antsy? Were you... Were you focusing on other things in life just to not, um, (laughs) you know, like every day clicking 10 times a day, (laughs) your email? (laughs) So at that point, I had three little kids at home, no babysitter. Oh, wow. I was always, until I started writing the second book in the Match series, when I started to have a little help, I never had a, a sitter or anything. I was just sort of doing this on the side. So I had the kids. One of my kids was one, so little, cute, very busy. They kept me busy. My husband was at this point trying to get tenure. So that's another whole thing. So he was very busy. So I had a lot going on and I kind of thought, well, this didn't go so well last time, but let's see what happens this time. I was a little more diplomatic about it. I mean, of course I hoped it would work, but then I was getting rejections. Absolutely. But I started to get requests for fulls, requests for partials. And I thought, wait, you know, this might actually work out. Like maybe I'll have a book published with the national press. And so I started to get pretty excited a month or two in when there was more interest than there had ever been before. I'm in awe that you're able to do all of this. Cause I think for me, I would immediately get so distracted. Forget about it. Can we talk about technical aspects of timing and logistics? I know you said rest when the kids are resting, but for you, you took that as time to work even harder, right? Oh my gosh. I, my goodness. Was this still the time when you were continuing your school of thought of, all right, kids are giving me two hours. I'm able to squeeze 1000 words now. Like, is this you continued with that habit. Yeah. So that was still the MO. But then my husband was awesome. And so he started doing this thing um, while I was writing Matched. And maybe before, actually, my memory is a little hazy, but definitely when I was writing Matched, where he would give me Saturdays. And so that was when I could really roll up my sleeves, make big plot changes, move stuff around, and kind of get big stuff done. So it was like a four or five hour block every Saturday, sometimes more where I could just really get my hands dirty. And that was huge. When you mean that you guys agreed on designating four or five hours each Saturday for your work, was that more so you were at home upstairs in a bedroom and your husband handles the children completely for the five hours straight? Or were you going outside to the library to, uh, you know, sometimes I hear significant others gift each other like a hotel room or something. Um, Like this is a real thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. But like, you know, was it more of like that or like a retreat situation or it's just 
plain and simple, let's just get work done in a bedroom and just focus. Yeah, it was that. We didn't have enough money. We we're still paying off graduate school and everything. Yes, of course. For hotels or retreats or anything. So, but we did have a little bedroom in the basement next to the laundry room. And so I could go down there and lock myself in there and write and they could be in the upstairs. And that was great. And I'm, I'm a distracted, I don't know what I am, but every hour or two, I do want to walk around and think. Mm -hmm. And so I could wander up and like make lunch or eat lunch with them or hang out for a minute and then wander back down and get back to work. So I actually really liked working at home. I didn't mind that. Oh, that's okay. That's really inspiring because a lot of our listeners, I'm not sure if you might be aware, but a lot of them, a majority are between 25 and 34. Many of them are mothers, whether it's first time moms or it's onto their third, fourth, fifth child. And no matter what, there's always conversation about how the heck do we figure out how to balance time because I am drained by the time I sit down and exhausted. Sometimes I want to cry and rip out my hair. Like it's that extent. So I think it's the really important part is just figuring out a flow that works for everybody. So there's no guilt as a parent. If there's any tidbits, like extra little nuggets you want to share or pass along, I would be so happy I mean, 25 to 34, that's exactly when I was doing all this beginning stuff. I mm-hmm. matched came out when I was, let's see, 2010. So I would have been 32. So this is my wheelhouse. You know, this is, these are the ages that I was trying to do this and had no help. And we ended up having a fourth child. So there were all these little people in the mix that you love, but they do not care about, <laughs> about your writing schedule. And so the, I think a couple of things that I learned were your schedule is that you have no schedule. And so you, there's going to be a few things that you can maybe hang your hat on like nap time or whatever. And just as soon as that works out, it changes and you have to figure it out all again. And that's exhausting. I mean, I'm not going to pretend and like that isn't hard. But for me, at least, it just felt so good to have written. I compare it to running all the time because I used to run and I had this really great coach. And I, I tell him all the time, like, you thought you were teaching me to run, but you also taught me how to write, which is I never really mm. wanted to start doing it because I was drained and tired and it wasn't optimal. But I was always so glad that I did. And, you know, you kind of get going. And for me, it's like that first mile. I never really love it. And then after I've hit that, I start to hit my stride. And it's it's like that with writing for me, too if you sit down and do it. And then another trick I learned was it's really hard to segue from mom to, at least for me, I was writing dystopian romance. So like, <laughs> like, oh, this has no connection. So I do have a playlist for each book. I don't, I listen to white noise or rainy music, rain sounds. I mean, when I'm actually writing, but before I write, I listen to two or three songs from my playlist to sort of shift my headspace. Ooh, that is helpful. When it comes to the playlist, how does that come to you for those who are have never created a playlist or just like, oh, maybe I'll try it? So it, it's kind of both, especially in the beginning, there wasn't Spotify, but there was Pandora. And so you could do that a little bit and find a song that you liked. Yeah, often it was finding a song on the radio liking it, trying to find similar songs. So it doesn't come together. It wouldn't, it wasn't a one day thing. Although when you said that, I thought that is so efficient. Why didn't I do it that way? Um, but it's a little more piecemeal than that. But I found even if I had one song, I could listen to that three or four times until I found more. And that was helpful. And then another giant dorky trick that I have is not necessarily always with writing even. I just really like to see people doing what they love and doing it well. And so I kind of tend to geek out about random stuff and watching that. I mean, this is dangerous because it's the internet and you can get sucked in. 
But if you find things that you love, like there's a Selena Gomez music video for It Ain't Me that I can watch and I just want to write because it's so cool. Or I love watching Michael Phelps swim. And so looking back at his old races on YouTube or whatever, I'm like, look at that guy. He's the best there ever was. Killing it, you know, or Sean Johnson for gymnastics. She was the cutest thing. So there's all these other, I can't do any of that stuff, but watching them do that's makes me want to do my thing. Oh, I love that. Okay. That's so great. Cause it inspires people to know you can really use almost anything as inspiration. You don't have to just focus on one medium. Can you give us a snapshot from your own words, the last voyage of Poe Blythe? Yeah. So this is the book that I've been writing since 2014 and I am so pumped about it because I think it's my best book yet. You hate to say that. It sounds like you're being mean to other children, but I do. <laughs> like Elevator Pitch is it's Mad Max Fury Road, but for teenagers. Ooh. It's a girl who something very bad happens to her in the opening chapter and she loses something, someone that she loves. Her life is finally going a little bit right. And so the rest of the book is her out to make everyone who wronged her pay. And it's set on a mining ship in the future. So she's the captain of it and she's going up river and she doesn't know who she can trust from her crew. She doesn't know she's under siege, under attack. She doesn't know what to think about those people. And also she's just lost basically the love of her life. But I do think it's also the most romantic book I've ever written, which is weird because it's so full of revenge, but it's got a lot going on. Okay, I need to hear the first memory of when this inspiration hit you. <laughs> so we were in Idaho for a family reunion, my brothers and sisters and our families and I, and we came around the corner, we were headed on a hike of this river valley, and I was like, what happened here? It was just wrecked. Everything was torn up. There were rocks everywhere. The river was destroyed. And as we kept driving up the river valley, we came upon this giant hulking metal ship. And I thought, this looks like it's been dropped down from a sci-fi movie. This does not look real. What is this? And I was obsessed. So I went and read the plaque by it, and it was a mining dredge. So they used to use these giant metal ships to tear up the river mining gold. And they were loud and giant and enormous, and they would they would leave the river in absolute ruin. And that's the story of the West, right? Is like, we have this beautiful land that we then completely pillage. So that really haunted me. And I thought, what if I had a girl on a ship like this in the future? And that was the initial idea. Wow. Oh my gosh. What an incredible first inspiration. I cannot believe that happened, by the way. Like that never happens. I go on a lot of road trips, a lot of traveling, a lot of wanderlusting happen. Nothing like that has ever happened to me. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Allie just has the coolest life experiences. Like what? Can I just borrow a fraction of that? Okay. So from there, how are you then fleshing out the details? And I know like you were saying that, you know, you usually never really worked with beta readers. But you mentioned that it was really more so your agent who you trusted. In this process, once that happened on that trip with your siblings, was this something you chatted with your agent about and said like, hey, so I came across this crazy thing and I have this awesome idea. What do you think? Or you fleshed it out first. What was that whole step-by-step -step process like? I'm always so curious about this. That's such a good question. So my agent's Jody Reamer at Writer's House, and she's tremendous. Um, she represents John Green and Stephanie Meyer and a bunch of other big authors. And also she is just a kick in the pants. So 
She's the smartest human in the room all the time. And she's 4'11 and a black belt. So I've learned that I am actually terrible at pitching so bad. In fact, it's terrible. So I have to send her like 50 pages of actual writing for her to really understand what I'm trying to do. Because when I pitch it, it always sounds so bad. I sent her 50 pages and she said, great, keep going. So by then I had a lot of author friends who would beta read for me, which was great. But also I was getting my master's degree. So I went back to the Vermont College of Fine Arts in 2015 and started getting an an MFA in their writing for children and young adults. So I had mentors, which was really cool. Kekla Magoon, who's a fantastic author, was reading. I had to generate creative work for my degree. Like that was my assignment. And so I would send her pages of this. And that was crazy. You know, how lucky is that to have this brilliant author looking at your work, giving you feedback. So that was an interesting process with this book to have that. Oh, wow. Okay. Quick side note. We are partners with VCFA. Yeah. I saw that on your site. I'm so happy to hear this because they were just on the phone with me. I was just chatting with the team at VCFA just this week because they wanted to continue working with us because they loved working with us. And we had such a wonderful experience with VCFA. I mean, we've been working with each other for three years. And I even drove up to Vermont just to check out the campus to see what it was like three years ago. It's amazing. And I only have the highest praise of their whole team. They're very kind and they're really good people. They're good folks there. So Kekla was there kind of guiding you through this whole process, be your, in a way, a bird's eye view to see where the direction is heading. What was that like? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So Kekla is really interesting because she trusts you to do what you're trying to do. She absolutely gives criticism and feedback and suggestions, but her trust in me made me trust in myself as well. And so that was a gift. I mean, she did the work, she gave me the feedback, but she also would say, I think, you know what you're doing in this part, or I think, I think this is a good story. And so that was tremendous. And I was also lucky enough to work with Anna, who you just mentioned on a different project later at school. And that's actually the project that I'm working on now. (gasps) You're kidding. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Uh, Are you allowed to share later or not yet under wraps? I can't say a lot, but it is another YA and I'm super excited about it. And I feel like, again, having that feedback in the beginning was really important. And another crazy VCFA story is, so I write a middle grade series with an author named Brendan Reichs, who is a New York Times bestseller of action thrillers. And we met at VCFA and became, well, no, we actually met a long time before it, but we became really good friends because we ended up going to VCFA at the same time. And we decided we should write something together. And we both have the same agent, Jody Reamer. So we write a middle grade series called The Dark Deep for Bloomsbury that's like Stranger Things meets The Goonies. So CFA seeded a whole bunch of different things in my life that wouldn't have happened. Otherwise, it's kind of crazy. Oh my God, Allie, you are giving me goosebumps left and right. You better stop it. You're just hitting me one after another. I just can't. (laughs) Hello. How incredible is this? And Anna, Na was your teacher as well. She is the queen. Oh my God. She is the best person in the world. I cannot believe you had the honor of having her in your life for, uh, is it one semester or is it? Yeah. I mean, just one hour of conversation with her. I was just goosebumps and I was crying. This is the program where you were stepping away um, because they don't have online. So your husband's also worked. So did you have family step in to help watch the kids? So at this point, we did hire a babysitter. (laughs) Yes! Go, Allie, go! (laughs) 
Yeah. So we had this amazing babysitter and she would come three times a week for four hours so I could work. And most of my kids were in school at this point. That makes a big difference too. But then I talked to my husband first and then I talked to her second. And I said, when I'm gone for these 11 days, twice a year, can you be the one to babysit? Because my husband's job is nine to five. So that's actually pretty good. You can come home at five and he does dinner and bedtime and it's not a really nightmarish job in in that regard, but he needs to be at work from nine to five. And so, yeah, it is funny. The second person who knew I was thinking about doing this was my babysitter because she was key to that whole process. Oh my God, I love this. I also am just overall just feeling really proud that you brought in a babysitter because I I know that's sometimes a funny little feeling for parents to just bring an outsider into the home, but to do this and really committing the time and the energy for you to focus on you and your writing and just giving yourself that space to really respect the art of it. I'm sure because you didn't have the time before that, but you get to really play. You have dedicated time to reconnect with yourself and remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and why you love writing. I think that's something really special when you dedicate yourself, You know, whether it's VCFA or anybody else, it doesn't matter, or even like a retreat, you're giving yourself a gift. And a lot of times I see artists overall can forget because life gets in the way, making a living and all of that stuff. And then we forget why we create in the first place, right? Yeah, you're saying it so perfectly. And like, that's exactly what it felt like. That recharging, all of that. I get this a lot from people in the industry too. Why would you go to school for the job you already have? But I knew I wanted to get better at it and I like teaching and I wanted to get a degree that would make me a better teacher should I ever decide to pursue that route. But yeah, I looked at that program for years before 2009, before I got my agent, before matched, before everything. And so finally, when my kids got old enough that it was feasible, I said, I'm going to do this. You know, I earned the money to pay for it and I'd put other people through school well, one other person through school and I was saving money for my kids' educations and I thought, it's okay if I educate myself as well. So I I kind of said, I'm going to do this. This is going to be a thing that happens. (laughs) I'm not going to go on an extravagant vacation, but I am going to get the master's degree I've always wanted. Yes, you go, Allie. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes, you are empowering us. I do want to jump into a back into the last voyage of Poe Blythe. So this is something you're saying you're working on with Kekla in the beginning, the, the ideas and fleshing out. Was it the crux of it was when you were in VCFA with Kekla as your teacher, then you went home and then you fleshed out the rest. And was there a time where you can have ongoing communication with Kekla or you just kind of took it from there and it became more about your own personal experience than with Jody? So once the semester was over, Kekla was done. You know, she was off the project. She had new students that she needed to focus on. So that was it. And then I worked on it a little bit longer and then I hit a wall. I could not get past this certain point in the book and I felt pretty good about what I had written, but I just didn't have the anger to write a revenge novel. So I kind of framed it in and I liked everything about it and I really liked the character and I just wasn't mad enough. And then 2016 happened. (laughs) We all know what that means. And so I thought... Well, and of course, for about a month, I didn't think I could write at all. Most of us, I think, were feeling a little discouraged. And then I thought, I can write this book now. I am so mad. And so within six months, the draft was done, which is very fast for me. And granted, I had been sort of working on it for several years at that point. And I sent it to Jody, and she said, 
this is it. This is the next book. And so then we started working. My editor is Julie Strauss-Gable at Dutton, who is a bona fide genius. She also edits John Green, Adam Gidwitz, a bunch of really great authors. Nova Rensuma, she edited for a time. So who's an amazing human being. So then we go to Julie and then it gets real because Julie makes you work. So (laughs) (laughs) I love how you said, then it gets real. Oh my gosh. What a compliment to Julie as well. Oh my gosh. All right. So with The Last Voyage of Poe Blythe, is there something specifically with the story that was so difficult for you to get through? Yeah. So for this book, it was the ship. So the ship is so secondary to the story, but it is the setting. And so I had an idea. I went to, I toured a couple of the dredges and people were great. The historical societies are always so kind and and interested and they'll show you things that maybe they're not supposed to, you know, areas. They have walled off or whatever, which is really nice. So I had this really good sense of what it would feel like to be on the dredge, but I am no mechanic and I am not an engineer. And so I had to build the ship and she has to know about it because she's running it. And you try to put very little on the page, only what serves the story. So I don't want anyone to get the idea that this is a giant how to, you know, run a ship book. It's not, it's action and romance and all of that, but got to make it make sense. And she has to know it even if, if you don't. And so what ended up happening is I put out a call on Twitter. I said, does anyone know a mechanic or an engineer who would be willing to consult with me on this project? I'll absolutely pay them. I've done the best I can, but I need them to help me work with it. And Beth Revis, who's an amazing author, she said, actually, my husband is, and he might be interested. And so I ended up hiring Corwin, her husband, and he was so great, so knowledgeable, so smart. And he, he's the husband of an author. So he understands this is about making the ship work for the plot. It's about making something real that could work, but we're not going to get in the woods here. So he was so fun. He'd send me videos of how different parts worked and pictures of different pieces that would go on the ship. And he read the book three times to see if everything lined up. I mean, I would flag the parts so he didn't have to wade through everything. Like here's where the ship comes in. And so he was, he's in the acknowledgements and everything. He was just the best. So that was the thing that tripped me up. And then Corwin saved me. What was the most exciting part for you, whether it's reactions from readers or maybe just that moment that you finally (laughs) typed in the last period in your manuscript and you're like, yes, bring me to that moment. I loved writing the end. And I think that's because it had been such a journey to get there for me too, like how long it took and all of that. I loved writing the end and the end came together. And it's always nice when that happens. So I loved that part. That was a great moment. I loved it when Julie loved it because she's very hard to, not hard to please because she's a very pleasant person, but it's a big affirmation when she likes something. So I loved that. And then I gave it to a few friends to read who I really trust. And one of them said, this is your best work yet. And that felt awesome. It was um, Soman Chinani, who I love. And he's a great author. He writes the School for Good and Evil series. And that meant a lot too. He's a very smart person. The, The pinnacle of it all is always the reader emails. And because I did teach high school, I love hearing from actual students. So getting those are huge to me. That's the icing on the cake. I love it every time. Oh my God. Allie, congratulations. That's so exciting. And also, you're just such a humble human being. Just hearing what makes you happy is very much shows where your heart is. And that's a good place to be, I gotta say. Thank you. If you don't mind, 
We do do a listener Q&A here. My listeners, I have to give them props because they're just such thoughtful, genuinely kind people in our community. And they always ask such thoughtful questions. So I'm going to throw in a few. And first, there was a comment from Christine Page who said, oh my God, I I love her work. So I just want to share that along. And <laughs> so Tracy Kenworth, she asked, what are you currently working on? Can you tell us a bit about how you juggle writing in life? So I'm juggling two projects right now. So I'm working on the third book in the Dark Deep series with Brendan Reich. So we're co-authors. So he writes a chapter, sends it to me. I write a chapter. So on the days, and book two is coming out um, September 24th. So that's all in the bank done. But we're working on book three because you work so far out. So that's awesome to have a co-author, especially a fun one, because he writes hilarious things and fun things and really good action. So I'm always pumped when he sends me a chapter and then I write mine and then I send it back. So in the off days, I work on my own project. And this is actually my dream scenario for work. I love having two things at once. Sometimes it gets confusing or messy, but I kind of like my brain is anxious. It likes to have two things to do. So the other project is a YA novel and it's like very, very messy. So it's not even that I can't talk about it. It's that I don't know if what I say will make sense later, but if it'll even be that book, but that will be again, probably a couple of years, just Julie is very busy. I'm So whenever you get in her queue, you're not totally sure when it will come out. I would imagine 2020, 2021, probably. That's so exciting. We'll look out for that uh, when the time comes. And Sarah Adams, one of our listeners, asked, how do you work through your editing process? What do you do when it gets difficult? Oh, editing is so hard for me. I have absolute faith in the process and in Julie. And I would cringe to not go through it. I know the books are better. I know that with every fiber of my being, but it's the initial part is so hard for me. It's like, (laughs) where's the entry point? You know, it's just like you're wrestling this whale and you're holding onto the flipper and getting thrown around and you don't know what you're going to do. And so I have to find a small entry point because I can't come in at something big. I have to find almost the smallest thing in her editorial letter to focus on and work on it. And then I can build from that. So that's the only thing I know to do is, is to find something little. When it comes to editing, do you notice if there's a way that you prefer to be given or told specific editing notes so that it really encourages the change that you both agree on? Because I find that it's really difficult to give editing notes, especially trying to be honest, but also not crushing the writer's soul. Also, if you get too polite, then it's like you don't want to waste the author's time having to do so many revisions, beating around the bush if you don't get the transparent notes. I'm asking specifically selfishly on my end because we have articles uh, now on 88 Cups of Tea and I'm always trying to instill kindness in my notes because I always want to encourage writers, but also there's a standard. I also believe that they can reach the standard and can really kill it with their essays. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a tough critic, but I have trouble giving the notes. So I, I wonder on your receiving end, maybe something from this can inspire not just me, but the community too. Yeah. So that's such a good question. And that's one of the things I went to BCFA to learn is I thought, I don't know how to give good notes. Ah, uh, yes. I think that's a, that's an art. And so it's impressive that you are doing that. And with Julie, and this is a very standard practice. I'm sure you've heard this answer a million times. I read it. I experience abject tragedy and humiliation. 
I rarely think she's wrong. I just think this is impossible. I can't do it. She's too smart. And so for it's the whole thing about give it three or four days and then you go back again and you start to think, okay, maybe this is how I could do it. Maybe this is the right way. And this is when you have an editor that you can trust. I mean, that's a big part of this. If I didn't trust her, I might have a different process. But with her, it's almost always right. She asks questions. She doesn't give you answers, which is horrible and terrifying and really empowering. <laughs> so it's just nine pages of single space questions. And so... <laughs> No, there's some suggestions too, but it's a lot of making you dig deeper. So that's kind of the thing is, is waiting, um, trusting her every now and then we do disagree, but it's so rarely that I do feel like I can, I can at least try to go where she's taking me. Thank you for that. So the next one is going to be the last listener question. Karis Rogerson said, first of all, I want to say I'm a huge fan. The Matched Trilogy was one I absolutely devoured in college. Back when I was still dipping my toes in the waters of YA and it's forever nestled in my heart. I'd love to know, right? This community is just so ridiculously sweet and we love Karis here. So she continued to say, I'd love to know about Write Out Foundation specifically oh. uh-huh specifically you managed to find resources like time funding author faculty for it and if you have advice for other ways apart from the words themselves to use writing as a means of furthering causes we care about whoa that was a really great one that's a great question yeah so write out came about again because i missed teaching i don't miss the grading well sometimes i do <laughs> The good stuff I do, but I missed teaching and I thought I have all these kid readers and I have teenagers of my own, but what am I doing to give back or to change things? And I always think it's kind of good to do what you can in your part of the world. No one needs me swooping in like an avenging angel to their part of the world. So <laughs> that's not good. So I started thinking when I was a kid, I grew up in rural Southern Utah. We have a small university in my hometown, which is Cedar City, but we never had an author visit or an author come. And so I thought, what could we do to, to take this there? My initial idea was like a bookmobile, but for writers. And we would drive to all these small communities. And it turns out that's prohibitively expensive and also sort of a logistical nightmare. So I thought, what if we brought the kids to this campus from all these smaller towns, Enterprise, Price, all these little Utah towns, whoever wanted to come could come. And I mean, they do have to pay because that's how we fund it. But it's a nonprofit organization. We're 5013C, all of that. Um, we don't make any money. Nobody's, there's no paid staff. And basically, I just called in favors from people I loved and knew from my life. So my high school best friend, college roommate, she just took a new job, but she was running the educational program at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. So they get to go to a Shakespeare play and she's still connected with that. So we still get to do that and we take them to a national park. And then I have author friends who I say, guess what? I'd really like you to come to Southern Utah and teach kids how to write. And so I pull in all my favors and it's the most magical thing because the kids are the best. They are so fun and great and smart and cute. And we were dying at the student reading this year, a kid read a piece and Soman Chainani, who I mentioned earlier, and Brendan and I were all texting each other saying he is better than we are. And we were not, he was, he was amazing. So it's incredibly exciting and fun and, and awesome. 
Oh my gosh, Allie, this is so incredible that you're doing this. Thank you for doing this. This was our third year and we're at writeoutcamp.org if people are interested. Yes, we will have that linked in your show notes page. Absolutely. For real, seriously, there are not enough good people like you out there. Thank you for doing this truly out of your own heart. I think that's so admirable. For you, I think it's particularly interesting to see how you reflect back on how you've evolved, because I'm sure you feel like you had a crazy spurt of growth at VCFA, but just overall, I'd love to hear from your own point of view. Oh, that's such a good, thoughtful question. I feel like you're always trying to get better, right? And I don't even know what that means, because it's such an objective, tricky, non-quantifiable thing in some ways, but in others, it's not. You know, are you trying new things? Are you challenging yourself? Are you telling the story that scares you? So all of these things, I think I'm getting a little bit better at doing only because I've been around long enough that I know how lucky I am. I'm not saying I am better at this yet, but I want to keep trying. And I feel like I'm lucky because I still get to write. I still have friends who are writing. I still have an exciting community of kids in my house who make me want to tell stories for them. So I think I'm getting a little more confident in the sense, not that I, I'm, I'm still a writer. I'm still totally unconfident, you know, I don't, but, but in that I want to try different stuff. So that's been really huge. And BCFA helped with that because they make you try new things. They're like, you don't write picture books. Guess what? You have to write a picture book. That's humbling. So all of that was really fun. A nice shot in the arm. It's nice to know that it's okay to fail over and over and over again, which I do. So, and also, you know, turning 40, it's like, there's only so much time and I want to tell a bunch of stories. So. (laughs) Wow. You're so accomplished. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I wonder when Na was your teacher, because I know she was talking about in her podcast episode where she wrote vignettes. Did she teach your class vignettes? Well, she did in workshop. Oh, so I was lucky because I had her both in workshop one semester and then as an advisor, another yeah, her vignette writing is exquisite. That's why I'm like wondering, like, were you one of those lucky students? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, now that you're saying that, I'm laughing because it's so obvious. A lot of the stuff I'm writing now in this very messy project is vignettes. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're kidding. Obviously, that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Oh my gosh. Oh, thank you, Ian. <laughs> no, thank you. I hope you reach out to Na and just like have a good chat with her. Oh my goodness. All right. So why don't we wrap it up with, if you could let us know what books you're reading. Yeah. So there's a really great book by Ray Bradbury to do the craft book first. And it's Zen in the Art of Writing, Essays on Creativity by Ray Bradbury. And I love everything about him. He's my favorite, one of my favorite authors. He just has so much joy in his writing. Even when he's doing crazy things, you feel like this is a guy who wrote very serious stuff. I mean, Fahrenheit 451, right? But he also, in his other work especially, there's no loss of the sense of play ever. And I love that. October Country is short stories that are, I read those every year. They're so fun and different and good. But I love that book. And that's, probably the craft book I'd recommend the most. And then just for reading lately, I've been reading Daisy Jones and the Six. I just finished listening to that on audio. It is to die for. It's an adult novel. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a big book this summer, but it's got all these different voices and it's very fun. And I'm reading Gingerbread by Helen Oyemi, or I don't know exactly how to say her last name, but it's magical realism and it's gorgeous. 
Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited. Our show notes manager will have all of those listed on your show notes page and have it linked. Please let the listeners know where they can find you on social media and also your website to check out. Yeah. So my Twitter handle is just Ali Condi, A-L-L-Y-C-O-N-D-I-E. And then Instagram, it's Ali.Condi because for a while someone was on there who wasn't me who had my name. So I had to have a dot. <laughs> and that wraps up our episode with Ali Condi. Ali, thank you so much for telling your story, sharing so much tangible crafting advice and for just being you. I had the biggest smile on my face during the playback of our conversation, and you are just such a special human. Thank you again for your time and the real talk with our community. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Allie on Twitter at Allie Condi. To find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Allie's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Allie dash Condi. If you loved our conversation, I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And if you have the extra time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. Your support helps our show become more visible to new listeners and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea to help our community grow. Thank you so much for taking the time. If you'd love more 88 Cups of Tea content, head over to our website at 88cupsoftea.com to read our articles and essays written by some of your favorite authors. Most recently, Julie Kibler wrote an essay about outsider syndrome. Annie Sullivan wrote a personal piece on why we need more women authors in the fantasy genre. And Sarah Faring wrote an actionable article on creating plot twists in your story. Trust me, if you love our podcast episodes, you're really gonna love these written pieces. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.